Hi Miriam, it's Judith. I'm sorry to suddenly pop into your life after, what must it be now, 12 years that you and I haven't seen or spoken to each other? But I would like to run something past you. I have a, I've had a project in my head for the last three years and I, I think it's got your name on it. So I'm going to preamble a bit to, to give you some uh, context. So stay with me and I hope this is going to make sense. I don't know if you know, but my art practice in the last three or four years has become exclusively uh, concerned with environmental issues. And one of my uh, influences was hearing Dr. Callum Roberts on The Life Scientific. In it, he talked about his book, The Unnatural History of the Sea, which is the history of fishing. I was sufficiently moved by what he was saying that I bought the book, came all the way from the States, and I would rate it as the saddest book that I have ever read. And there was one particular story on Chesapeake Bay that has been in the back of my mind for these last three years, thinking this is a story that is timely and it is the account of a relentless ecological decline. And this is where, Miriam, I'm wondering if we could retell this story and that we, we give it an artist's treatment. So we have a visual artist and a theatre maker. We could put this story together. So we take the carcass, as it were, of the science narrative and we build around that so we stick with the facts but we build around that we give it color we give it texture we use songs music soundscapes hoping that we might light small fires of engagement in people who for whatever reason do not engage in thinking about the environment, but also for those people who, and I can include myself in that, who almost stand back and were bewildered, were perplexed and paralysed by watching our natural world descending into this terrible malaise. I am very taken by the words of uh, Marta Kiran, an environmental artist who has the quote, Artists scream, scientists can't. And I think retelling this tale of ecological decline, which is a universal tale, would make this an opportunity for us to scream, to weep, to blaspheme over the, the fateful tale of Chesapeake Bay. Hello and welcome to a new four-part podcast by Judith Ankertel and Miriam Gould for the Remembrance Day of Lost Species. This is Chapter 1, Introduction and the Oyster Wars. Hi Judith. Oh my goodness, it's so lovely to hear from you. Uh, yes, I think it has been at least a decade since we saw each other and worked together, uh, which is mad, isn't it? I don't know much about the Chesapeake Bay at all. I'm pretty sure my mother visited there as a child with her family in the 60s, so it would be really interesting to know what was going on under the water surface uh, when she was frolicking about as a child. This story sounds really fascinating and heartbreaking. I don't know if you know, but I uh, recently bought a field at the start of this year to set up uh, my own market garden and forest garden and plant some trees. 
And so I've been very conscious of ecosystems and the balance within them and how we affect them and how vulnerable they are. I'd also be very interested to know or understand more about how my actions on land might impact the water in the sea. All these invisible forces at play that, well, they're they're not invisible, they're just invisible to us when we don't look. So it would be very good to look at it in the face and I guess allow myself to be heartbroken by it. So yeah, I'm I'm up for it, Judith. I can't wait to speak to you. Okay, bye. We're recording. I'm excited because you sent me the Callum Roberts chapter and um, it is such a heartbreaking story, uh, but so fascinating. Yeah, and I think the... It, it is quite a universal tale if you take ecological stories. There's something about estuaries around the world. They all just have, they share this sort of similar decline. They do. They all have this problem because they're such conduits for humans going into the land. Right. They're so, they're so rich and they're also so, um, so useful in terms of transport. I think we'll, we'll give it, a, we'll give it a go. And, um, <laughs> I wonder. I wonder how we're going. How are we going to do it? I definitely feel inspired to like write some poems or some songs as it gets into the the live the fish stories, as it were. We can't see them, right? And so we might look out over the sea, and we might imagine from our school books or from you know what we what we know already, but we. We only see them when they've been filmed or they've been slapped onto a, a fish slab and one is going to is going to eat them. They're dead. And they're, they're dead fish. So yeah. this this is a really hidden world. And I I think that's why I feel kind of drawn to to them because they have they have, they have no voice. So you know, I don't want to patronize the fish, but I think it would be good to give them a voice or to yeah to shine a light on them well yeah definitely this thing about giving them a voice I'm really interested in non-human protagonists Uh, it's hard to have empathy for something that we see as not being alive so if you endow something with a spirit or life yeah then you can care about it yeah um so I really I think especially for an environmental tale uh doing that i think would be really nice so it's tuesday today so what about if we reconnect on thursday yeah and we'll see if um we'll go through the 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 research material maybe you seem to be like a good human person maybe you can do the history wars i'll focus on those stupid people (laughs) (laughs) okay if you do that okay and i'll see if i can get a better a better, I, I don't think I'm going to make a timeline, but if I could make a better kind of um, understanding of it that would make it sensible to, for listeners as, as we go through this. So in, give it some structure. Yeah. yeah. So what do you reckon for Thursday? Yeah. What time? Like 2, 2.30. Perfect. Yep. Okay. I'll speak to you then. Okay. I'll see you, see you then. Okay. All the best. Okay. Welcome along. Bye. 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 I came to visualise this uh, 120 years of ecological history in layers. My starting point was Callum Roberts' chapter on Chesapeake Bay, but the story is so complex that I realised that there, there's no neat cut-off point where social history made way for oyster wars, which made way for water quality, which made way for the lives of fish, which made way for recovery stories. So I made a series of linear informatic drawings to see if I could visualise this complexity. I walked backwards and forwards, waved my arms around. I could see that they were all interconnected, but they did not follow a unified timeline. So I came to visualise it like this. 
I am standing in front of an imagined section of the river as if it was in a giant tank in front of me. Surge is passed as, as if it's on a film screen. I watch 120 years pass by. All the characters are not in play or prominence at the same time. They sometimes interact, or sometimes they have centre stage. They come into view and out of view, but they are all interconnected. As I watch this imagined screening and the water flows past in front of me, I can see established settlements on the shores, areas of forests cleared, farms created, oysters as a commodity. I see thousands of ships dredging for oysters, conflict amongst the watermen, conflict with authorities. We shall call this episode one. I turn my eyes to the water that lies between the seafloor and the surface. And this, by the way, is known as the water column. I rerun the 120 years. This time, I see pristine habitat, sea grasses moving with the water, sun breaking through to the bottom. I hear the dredges raking and breaking the oyster beds. It ends in silence. This will be episode two. I turn my eyes to the middle of the water column and I rerun the 120 years. I see vast schools of Menhaden fish who come to the bay for their summers. I see metal fishing nets with huge mouths. I see predacious, powerful sea bass who are higher up the food chain. I see the near impossibility of survival by the 1980s. This will be episode three. Now the river in the tank is held in suspension as we leave 2020. The end? Or the light at the end of the tunnel? We will hear about recovery plans already in place, the reseeding of oyster beds, replanting of seagrasses, cooperation between fishing interests and scientists, growth of aquacultures. This will be episode four. And leaving the best to the last... We will be talking to delightful, nature-loving folk who will share with us their innovative ways of engaging with the natural world. We are thrilled to share their stories with you. Our combined energies will generate ideas and touch on that question that no one can answer. What can we do for the environment? So, start your engines. This ain't going to be pretty. But if we can do it, you can do it. So I thought I'd just quickly pop in with some facts about the Chesapeake Bay because at this stage I would be wondering where are we and what is it? A lot of this information will be unpacked in greater detail in the following episodes but for now it'd probably be good for us to know that the Chesapeake Bay is on the eastern coast of North America, so facing the Atlantic. It is the third largest estuary in North America. So some context to help locate the bay along the coast is it lies about 180 miles south of New York. It lies along the border of Maryland and Virginia. More than 150 major rivers and streams flow into the Chesapeake Bay. And this network of waterways covers about 64,000 square miles. And that is its uh, drainage basin or watershed. Now, I'm not going to go into big detail about uh, the different definition between watershed and drainage basin, but they are more or less interchangeable, especially here for our purpose. A watershed or drainage basin in this case is the network and the land that contains all the water, runoff, precipitation, rivers, streams, lakes and groundwater that runs towards the sea or an estuary. 
everywhere is a watershed. So you, listener, are currently standing on a watershed or sitting down, if you're like me. So the watershed of the Chesapeake Bay is huge. And this means that all the water in this expanse of 64,000 square miles of land runs into the bay. And this will become important later. The Chesapeake Bay is huge. It's 200 miles long and 2.8 miles wide at its narrowest and 30 miles wide at its widest. Now, if you're like me and you find that quite difficult to visualise, if you're in Britain, you'll be familiar with the English Channel maybe. And the English Channel is 22 miles wide at its widest. So if you're standing in Dover looking across to France, the Chesapeake Bay at its widest is wider than that. Uh, I hope that helps. Okay, back to Judith. The first recorded history is from a 27-year-old Captain John Smith who sailed into Chesapeake Bay in April 1607 after a four-month journey from England. He and his three ships had arrived in the New World. They established a triangular-shaped fort and named both the fort and the river after the English king, James I. Smith was clearly taken by the Bay Area, and in 1607 he wrote, Heaven and earth have never agreed better to frame a place for man's habitation. This was the land of the Algonquian people. It was estimated that there were 30 separate tribes in the Chesapeake Bay area who were all ruled by Chief Powhatan. The Algonquian people led a settled life. They built substantial houses, not dissimilar to longhouses. There was ventilation, sleeping areas, communal areas, food suspended from the ceiling to protect from marauding squirrels, and a fire always burning in the centre. As, as staples to their diet, they grew corn, beans and squash. They supplemented this with fresh and seawater fish, hunting for large game for meat and skins for clothes. They made bread from corn, hickory nuts, walnuts, acorns and chestnuts. The fort at Jamestown provided shelter and protection for Smith and his men, but they struggled to feed themselves. The Algonquins showed them their growing techniques and brought food to them. Chief Powhatan looked onto the English as yet another tribe to come under his influence, and the English settlers reciprocated, hoping to bring him and his tribes into their influence and to convert to Christianity. As the years went by, the English felt more entitled in their demands and the Algonquians less obliging. Conflicts between the two groups arose and continued for years. The English settlers brought diseases with them against which the indigenous people had no immunity. In some tribes, as many as nine out of ten died of disease. As the numbers of tribes decreased in the area, so the numbers of English settlers increased. Over the next 200 years, the English and Europeans settled, cleared land, lived from the land and the sea, and built trading routes into the States and back to Europe. Hi Judith, it's me. Uh, I'm getting in touch because I want to tell you about the Oyster Wars. Um, uh, I've been spending the last few days doing my research and trying to piece together a sort of narrative of this big period of time because uh, supposedly the Oyster Wars, um, the time period that is given for them is 1865 till 1959, which was a lot more recent than I thought. Basically, fundamentally, it is a story about when industry and legislation and sustainable fishing is at odds and the greed and violence that stems from from this industrial capitalist venture. So the Chesapeake Bay had masses of oysters, big oyster reefs, uh, ships used to have to navigate around them because they would otherwise they would run aground 
And there was a long, long history of oysters being used for sustenance. Uh, the Native Americans ate them. And then when the settlers arrived, the Jamestown settlers, they uh, actually complained about the fact that they had to exist on oysters. Then they were fed to slaves as a sort of subsistence food. Uh, they were used for fertilizer. But then as the economy boomed and started regenerating after a series of depressions in 1830s, in the 1840s, the economy started to grow quite rapidly. Uh, and despite the American Civil War, which was from 1861 till 1865, so despite the massive economic costs of this war, there was, I guess, it, what you would say is a growing middle class. People had more disposable income and with that came status foods and oysters because there was an abundance of them and there were railroads running from the Chesapeake to Baltimore and Ohio and then through to other parts of the colonies, we'll call them. Um, although I guess technically they were America already. Uh, because of the, the combination of canning and the railroads, these uh, the massive sort of supply of oysters in the Chesapeake became this sort of prime industry to fuel this status food and uh, affluent sort of uh, society that was growing. Because of the canning, oysters could last about six months uh, so they could be shipped all over the place. Now, New England had had loads of oysters as well, but dredging had arrived in New England much earlier than other places of America. And basically by the 1860s, the oyster supply was depleted. So a little bit of info the dredging is, you know, where you lower a metal cage and it's got, and there's a sort of scraping thing that just, it just scrapes the entire bottom of the seabed and then it gets lifted out. And it's a very unsophisticated but high yielding way of, of, of getting oysters. Whereas traditionally, oysters had been harvested uh, through something called tonguing. So that was basically like two long forceps that uh, someone would put into the water and they'd sort of wiggle an oyster free and lift them out. Uh, this meant that some oysters got dropped and basically it was a much more sustainable way of harvesting oysters and it provided uh, local watermen with their livelihoods and was something that they had done for a very long time and that a lot of people relied on for their living. So the Chesapeake Bay, situated as it is as part of a border between Maryland and Virginia, this means, of course, that there's disputed waters and who was allowed to fish where and how was sort of a sticking point from the settling of the colonies in like the 1600s. And basically never stopped being a, a issue for dispute. So in the 1860s, with this big old boom, uh, the oyster boom and the economic boom, there was just this, there was a massive demand for oysters. And the Chesapeake Bay was the place as, as well, because Baltimore was just sort of up the railroad and... Baltimore became sort of the canning industry headquarters of the country. So the New England dredgers, who had obviously depleted their oyster supplies, travelled down the coast and began dredging in the Chesapeake Bay. Also, you had Maryland watermen going into Virginia waters and Virginia watermen going into Maryland waters to do all their fishing. And so there was basically like a gold rush for these oysters, they were also called uh, white gold, and inevitably the skirmishes began. No.
no one tires of oysters. Raw, roasted, scalded, stewed, fried, boiled, escalloped, in pâtés, in fritters, in soup. Oysters are found on every table, sometimes at every meal, and yet no entertainment is complete without them. Bless the government, they really they tried. They passed so many legislative acts. There was, they outlawed dredging, uh, Virginia outlawed dredging both in 1811 and 1879. Maryland outlawed dredging in 1820, as well as uh, these license acts being passed where only someone with a license could fish in the waters or only local watermen could fish in the waters. All these legislations were being passed and they were just completely ineffective. Uh, let's see, I need to find my years, my notes. So in 1868, the Maryland Oyster Police Force was established, uh, also known as the Oyster Navy, but it was unable to deal with uh, the ensuing violence because the watermen and the dredgers were all heavily armed. In 1874 also, the Maryland established the state fishery force and and the, I've got here, Virginia in 1870s imposed, yes, the license fees, the seasonal limits, all of these things to preserve the oyster population. But they had apparently sold their maritime police force, uh, three vessels, Um, they'd sold that in auction and they were pretty cash-strapped. This is, I mean, they might have been cash-strapped because of the war. I'm not really sure why they were cash-strapped. But they were basically, fundamentally, incapable of enforcing these laws. Uh, so what you get is this lawless society along the bay with gamblers and prostitutes and oyster pirates, also known as the Mosquito Fleet, coming in. And pirates used to do this thing where they would just grab someone off the shore. They'd kidnap people. Usually these were newly arrived immigrants. Uh, they'd put them to work and then they'd just dump them on the shore without paying them. Or they would pay them by the boom, which meant that they would use them for their labour and then drown them. If you think, trying, I don't know, just trying to imagine the sort of bustle and rough and tumbleness of this place. So there's a place on the bay called Chrisfield and in 1872 it, was the, it had the largest oyster trade in the state and employment for over 600 sailing vessels. So just imagine the waters are just full of ships at night in the saloons. There were boxing rings where watermen from, the, from Virginia and Maryland would fight. Big bloody fights. So The murders started when the dredgers moved into the Tonger's turf. So what had happened is one of the many legislations that was passed was that oyster tongers, oyster watermen, the local watermen, they could use the creeks and the rivers and these industrial dredgers uh, could have the deeper waters. But almost immediately, the dredgers just moved into the Tonger's turf. And there was, you know, the, there was there were many battles where oystermen were trying to chase away the dredgers. Then the dredgers would open fire. The state government would arm the oystermen, but then the dredgers would, you know, go away, having already sort of scraped the seabed of all the oysters. Now uh, we come to. 1882, where the Virginia governor, William E. Cameron, uh, who was very popular and had a lot of support, but apparently this man was quite a showman. I think he sort of like was one of those people who just talked about himself a lot. He told people that he was very good friends with Mark Twain. I think it sounds like they just worked together on a boat one time, but Basically, he was a great orator and, you know, obviously the population, the local people, they just had enough of all this violence. And so to sort of boost his popularity and to show that, you know, 
law enforcement could have an effect, he organised an expedition to take on these oyster pirates, these illegal dredgers. Uh, So this expedition took place in the early hours of February 17th, 1882. So they took uh, several ships in the morning and went to the mouth of the Rappahannock River where they knew that dozens of illegal dredgers would go at night to dredge the seabed or the riverbed. So as they're raiding, they arrive. Uh, A lot of the oyster pirate, the dredgers, dredging ships sort of give up pretty soon because this kind of raid hadn't really happened before and there was a big howitzer on the ship and there was, you know, they... The, the law enforcement came with the big guns, basically. Uh, one of the ships broke away from the raid, and this led to a chase and eventual capture of the Kirkwood, which was a ship by Cameron. Uh, Cameron was on board a ship called the Victoria J. Pede. Um, supposedly, Cameron fired at this vessel himself once they'd caught up with it, but later... I just found this quote and I really liked it. Um, The captain, a Captain Crockett of the Kirkwood, so he was an oyster pirate, he said, I don't know what all this means. I was bound to Norfolk and heard guns firing, but I thought they were firing at ducks. Didn't know they were firing at me till one of them air shots come near my head. So this gives a sense that it is quite a light-hearted quote, which I found interesting. Um, But, you know, I guess these people were uh, just used to this sort of way of life. So despite the sort of seeming success of this raid, it turned out most of these captured boats were actually from Virginia and they weren't because a large part of the outcry was all these foreigners, in, in, in air quotes, basically anyone not from Virginia or Maryland, were coming down and, and, and plundering their waters. But basically it turned out that most of these boats were actually from Virginia and like only one was from New York. And in the end, there was little proof that they'd been doing anything illegal and all the watermen were eventually pardoned. I think the the ships were sequestered and then there was a big hoo-ha about the government owing these people money because they'd taken their ships, etc. But it was a very good propaganda exercise for Cameron. Then there's the second battle, which is a bit more infamous, but not for good reasons. So this second battle took place about a year later, February 27th, 1883. And this was a similar exercise, go at night to where the dredgers are um, and capture them and catch them in the act. Now, a lot of the people dredging at the time were the people who had been pardoned the year before. And this time, unwisely, Cameron allowed a heap of press onto the two ships that were conducting the raid. So every aspect of this was documented by the press. And that, I think, is just like, what is just a very stupid idea. Uh, And you will see why. So on the way to the raid, one of the ships, one of the two raiding ships hit rough weather. It was called the Pamlico. It had no ballast. And so here's a quote from the Norfolk Virginian from the 1st of March in 1883. Uh, He said that the main cabin was in turmoil where, quote, colonels, generals, privates, civilians, swords, chairs, bayonets, blankets, spittoons, coal scuttles, etc. were tumbled about and mixed together fearfully. And then apparently in the after cabin, a coal stove was overturned and burning coals scattered everywhere. Uh, the captain and someone else chucked the, the stove overboard but burnt themselves. And then the seasickness began. 
Meanwhile, there's a journalist scribbling it all down. So when the Pamlico finally arrived off Smith's Point, near the mouth of the Potomac River, there were only eight oyster schooners there because they had been forewarned. So there was a leak somewhere and earlier, earlier that morning, a little boat had gone from Norfolk to these dredgers and told them that a raid was happening. So there were only eight oyster schooners there and only one schooner was captured and it was a Maryland vessel. Now, the Dancing Molly was one of the oyster pirate ships and the Pamlico came upon this ship thinking it was empty. They couldn't see anyone there. There was no sound. But they didn't know that the the captain's wife and their two daughters were still on the ship. The daughters tried, and the, the wife tried to call to the, the, the crew that had abandoned this pirate ship uh, to call them for help, but there isn't very much that they could do. So the Pamlico began to chase the dancing Molly and uh, fire on them, but these women obviously spent all their time at sea and they hightailed it out of there and made it into the open Maryland waters, which I suppose is where they were from. And this is what's funny, when you, you start getting invested in, you know, I was reading this and I was like, yeah, women, <laughs> women fleeing from, I don't know, uh, guns and things. But they are pirates. But so this, I think the Virginia people were going through the same thing. So as the dancing Molly escaped and got into the Maryland open waters, Virginia people along the shores cheered because it was three women crewing this ship. But they, you know, the Virginia people were the ones who wanted this raid to happen. I guess what we can learn from that is that everyone loves an underdog for right or for wrong reasons. So at the end of this 1883 raid, um, this failed raid was lampooned and uh, one of the journalists wrote uh, a little musical lampooning it Um, I found a song from it, which I might play you later. And Cameron's popularity sort of sharply decreased after this. Oh, yes. And the the comic opera was called Driven from the Seas or the Pirate Dredger's Doom, which I think is an ironic title. In 1884, Cameron did, you know, he established the board on the Chesapeake and its tributaries, which did actually lead to mildly better enforcement and fishery management. But he'd sort of shot himself in the foot, really, by a lot of the people that he'd chased on these dredging boats were working-class people. I don't know. It's very... Basically, it's very complex, you know, who's who's bad, who's good. <laughs> I think that even the people working on the dredging ships you know, were just trying to make a living. Now, I know that it's not as straightforward as that because who's in charge of the dredging ships? And then, of course, you had these captains who were kidnapping people and murdering people and all of this. So it's very murky. Uh, So from the 1880s onwards, I guess there's just... The odd skirmish, the odd murder, the odd body found floating offshore. And then it's just ongoing, ongoing. I found an article, or no, I found a quote. I did not find the article. <laughs> the person whose article I was reading found the article. Um, there was a Washington Post article from 1947, and this is the quote. Already the sound of rifle fire has echoed across the Potomac River. Only 50 miles from Washington, men are shooting at one another. The night is quiet until suddenly shots snap through the air. Possibly a man is dead, perhaps a boat is taken, but the oyster war will go on the next night and the next. Um, And it did go on in this sense until the late 50s. So in 
58 dredging was allowed in the Potomac River. Legislation was passed to legalise dredging in the river. And a lot of Maryland watermen see this as the end of independent and small oystermen because they just had no rights anymore, really. Uh, Then the war is sort of officially ended in 59 when an oyster police officer kills an illegal Virginia dredger. And after this, the oyster navy is disbanded and... In 1971, the Oyster Police Force becomes the Maryland Natural Resources Police, and they still exist. And I guess they do still police uh, pirates and illegal dredging and illegal fishing because there are, of course, still license acts and things like this. But I guess uh, the war in '59 stopped from being sort of militarised to focusing on how do we protect our resources with great difficulty, I think, is the answer. This is Twas Off the Rappahannock by James F. Duncan from his Driven from the Seas or the Pirate Dredger's Doom. And it has the dedication to the surviving battle-scarred heroes of the late Oyster War. This little travesty is respectfully dedicated from 1883. Was off the Rappahannock's mouth about the break of day We saw with sails all gleaming white the pirate dredgers lay With steamers peed and Pamlico about four knots an hour With rifled guns and jugs of rum the seas we'd come to scour Oh, it was glorious fun to see the rascals run From the city guard and Norfolk blues and five big jugs of rum. They hoisted sail and quickly fled, their heels they showed that day. From bursting shell and rain of lead, the cowards ran away. The Palo Alto crossed our bows, oh little did he wreck. With champagne corks and codfish balls, we'd quickly sweep his decks. Oh, it was glorious fun to see the rascals run From the city guards and Norfolk blues and five big jugs of rum But though we licked the pirates bold, their pretty wives and daughters Cannot be beat by all the troops that sail Utopia's waters With fearless hand they guide the prow that cleaves the rushing tide with both our boats we failed to catch one single pirate's bride. But it was glorious fun to see the rascals run from the city garden north the blues and five big jugs of rum. But it was glorious fun to see the rascals run from the city garden north the blues and five big jugs of rum. I got my sources, if you want to know. Well, obviously Wikipedia. Uh, the Mariners Museum, Chesapeake Bay Maritime Museum. All of this was online, by the way. Uh, Southern Maryland Oyster Guide the National Endowment for the Humanities website and the International Journal of Naval History all had really fascinating articles on the Oyster Wars. 
some conflicting information and also definitely could tell if it was Maryland or Virginia who had written the article because even now I guess there is a sort of competition between the two fishing rights a pretty ongoing issue around the world but this is a little little slice so I hope that made some sense and yeah I look forward to hearing from you okay It's recording. Crikey, what a day. Starting from the, starting kind of at the end, you, you can't but love the Dancing Molly story. <laughs> I know, well, I was really, I was sort of rooting for them. And then I think, well, you can hear it in me. Mm, so I suddenly mm. realised I was rooting for pirates. <laughs> people, people who'd probably murdered. And I was like, mm-hmm. that's so funny. But yeah, the it's a... Uh, it was definitely a story that captured the imagination of the people at the time as well. Yes. The other really barmy thing about it is that you, and it also brings up this recurring theme that you've got uh, Virginia and Maryland who yeah. opposite each other on Chesapeake Bay. Yeah. And they've had this, these continual fights going on over you know, decades, as it were. Well, uh, even and- hundreds of years. Britain right now is negotiating um, to leave Europe. Yeah. So there are people, unseen people behind the scenes right now who are, they're actually, right as we are talking today, they're, they're beginning to break through on the, the actuality of the fisheries agreements. But when you actually get into the, the details of these, these uh, regulations, these laws that are coming out, they are beyond complex. Yeah. And you literally need a legal degree to, to be able to um, t- untangle them or to work your way through them. So we have to trust these legal brains in there who are negotiating. Mm. And that's that's where our uh, fishing regulations are coming up, literally as we speak. I think when I was researching the Oyster Wars, I suddenly remembered that, was, was it the Scallop Wars that happened recently? Oh, yeah, yeah. Between, between Britain and France or something? Yeah, could be. I mean, and that was only a few years ago. And then I realised these things are continuously happening. We still call them the something war. That long view of history that really, yeah, it was just I just hadn't really thought about it's that. Good. It's kind of what we're doing here, actually, is mm. that we are surprising ourselves with how little we know. I spoke to uh, a fishmonger about a year and a half ago, and I tell everybody about him because he, he explained to me the regulations that the small British fishing boats have to do when they go out and it was literally took them 25 minutes to <laughs> explain to me the regulations that they follow his knowledge was phenomenal the moment they that they leave the their little um the little inner harbor here mm. uh, everything is is uh they're followed they're followed digitally and the moment they leave, they are responsible for everything that happens in their catches that are going to occur in the next eight hours or whatever. When things are well regulated, mm. they are um, they are an- they're very answerable, actually. Right. So at one end, we've got the regulations down here. The, the fishermen are working to them. At the other end, you've got governmental unseen people and they're making these these regulations. What I took away mostly from learning about the oyster wars, and maybe it was already in line with things that I think and my my ethics is that I don't think there's anything inherently wrong about harvesting oysters as humans yeah yeah um and so this whole tonguing way of doing it meant that you know because it was vaguely inefficient and individual practice and small quantities at a time if that had just continued it would have been fine Yes. The yeah, problem yeah. is the big corporations yeah. coming down and just stripping things with no, mm. with no care. I feel like Chesapeake, the Chesapeake is it's showing us the detriment of uh, what big corporations can do. And it, it, I agree, but they they might argue that they are supplying a demand. 
Well, of course, well, no. that's capitalism. Yeah, I know. So it comes back to to us because we demand it. Yeah. Another thing that I, I realised as I listened that we didn't, neither of us mentioned the refrigeration. Because the refrigeration is is a, a big part of it because that the moment they could they could carry them and they would arrive, you know, fresh. Yeah. It just literally, it, op- it opened the doors for for more profit to be made from it. Yeah, well, that, and I guess that, that has to do with this supply and demand. It's sort of, um, you can supply more if you have the refrigeration. Yeah. Therefore, people will get used to and expect to have things mm-hmm. available mm-hmm. that they wouldn't have available to them. Yes. I mean, yeah. basically, it's it's want and not need, and that's the thing that's painful. Ah, good point. Yeah. Um, they don't need oysters in the middle of America. No. But they wanted them. Yeah. Yeah. And that's why the seabed is scraped. Yeah. People accept the conditions in their their own time, and they don't look back to uh, what it might have been and it's, it's referred to as generational blindness what will be happening now and if anybody listening to this actually goes I'm going to have a look I'm going to go online and I'm going to look at Chesapeake Bay and oh my god it looks amazing and there's like this sort of trees up to the water and there's water everywhere and there's pleasure boats and there's you can buy oysters here um, and all of that is actually true they live it they're living now and they don't inquire back um, and we all we you know they, we all don't inquire back as it were, but it's yeah. a da- it's a dangerous thing to do because you accept uh, you accept what you've got. I saw a video of a, a sort of a woman making a video about Chesapeake Bay, and she said, "I know at the end of my jetty, it's a dead zone." Huh. What makes a dead zone? What is the seabed thinking? Can sea kelp save us? And what do trees have to do with all of this? Find out by joining us for episode two of the fateful tale of Chesapeake Bay.